this week on the Back Table Podcast. So I think that you should always bet on yourself that you can, you can be better and that you can solve complex problems, particularly if they're kind of human relation problems. Often what happens is you find yourself in a work environment where there's conflict and there's people working against each other and butting heads. And that's the reason why you have systemic error in something like tracheostomy patients. You'll find that there's just people who that's the way they do trachs or, you know, no one takes the care of people with tracheostomy seriously or, or you don't think anybody wants to make things better. And, and I would say that that's not true. I think wherever you are, if you really set out to make positive change, positive change will happen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Back Table ENT Podcast. I'm your host, Gopi Shaw, here with my co-host, Ashley Agan. Hey, y'all. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Romaine Johnson. Um, Dr. Johnson uh, did his residency at Baylor. He was a Cincinnati fellow uh, for pediatric ENT. Um, then went on and got his master's in public health and has been at UT Southwestern and da at Dallas Children's. He's our main airway surgeon at Dallas Children's. He's our airway guru. So welcome to the show, Dr. Johnson. We're so happy to have you today. Well, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here and, and to, to talk to you all about uh, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about uh, tracheostomies, uh, pediatric, maybe some adult tracheostomies, you know, quality and how to, you know, how to get a program going and how to keep it so that it's a safe, successful program for, for trachs. First, Dr. Johnson, do you want to just tell us a little bit about your practice and your interests and how it got started into airway, pediatric airway, airway surgery, trachs? Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and that's where I'd spent most of my young life. And it's also where I went to medical school. And so during my third year of medical school, the first rotation was general surgery. And that was kind of one of the, the power rotations. You did 12 weeks, you're on call every fourth night. And, you know, like real, the real medical students did well in that rotation. Right. And so, but the way they had it arranged was you spent your first month doing a subspecialty month. Mm. And I actually wanted to be a psychiatrist. Right. I was president of the psych club, the student psych club. And not, wow. there were a lot of African-American psychiatrists in Philadelphia. They had like little monthly dinners and I would go to the dinners and I was yeah. very active. And then during that first month of my rotation in general surgery, I did ENT. Wow. And that was it. I was like, oh my God, I love this. I love this specialty. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, of course I had never really heard about ENT in terms of what it, you know, what it was about. Right. And so then I asked some of the other students who were on the rotation with me. And then you, you get that kind of the reality check where it's like, hey, hey, you do know, like, this is one of the most competitive specialties out there. <laughs> That's why it's so much fun. You didn't think it was just going to be easy. Like, oh, man, I did not realize that. Right. And so I had to, you know, kind of step my game up. And I was very fortunate. I, during my fourth year, I sat down with, he's actually, um, he's the pres he's the triological chair now for the, the committee. He's a committee chair. His name is Dan Dreschler. Mm -hmm. at Boston. But at that time he was in uh, Philadelphia at Drexel. 
And he kind of sat me down and he basically said, Romain, you, you're, you got a good chance of not matching. Oh gosh. And you need to, you're going to have to strategize to get a, to match. And he said, you're only doing one away rotation. That's not enough. You need to do another one. And of course he tells me this in July. And oh, then the early match, the ENT was an early match. Right. We matched in January. And so July is like really late in the game to get the away rotation. But the internet was pretty new then. So I went to the school library and I got on the internet and I had done some outcomes research as a postdoc or post baccalaureate after college at the University of Pennsylvania. And I had kind of interested in that. And so I emailed, I went to the Academy's website and they had some names there, people who were doing outcomes research in laryngology. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so like one was in St. Louis and one was in like Boston and then one was in Houston. And I was like, well, I don't really want to go to Boston and I don't want to go to St. Louis. Houston, okay. <laughs> like Philadelphia apparently, or it's like a big city like Philly. So I emailed the guy. And he said, oh, absolutely. Come on down and do an away rotation. And that person was Michael Stewart, wow. our chair at, at Cornell. And so that kind of, I went there and I just kind of knocked it out the park and I matched at Baylor. And then I think it was during my third year at Baylor, or my third, yeah, my third year at Baylor, my PGY3, that's when you do your children's rotation. And I already become very friendly with the, the pediatric laryngologist there. There were only three there at the time, and but I was very friendendly with them. And in fact, Dr. Friedman, who I, I came in the OR one day, and I don't know if residents, she should do this, but I did. I came to the OR one day and I said, hey, Dr. Friedman, is it okay if I call you Ellen? I feel like we're pretty good friends. Did you Absolutely. <laughs> and I called it Ellen. And so <laughs> Dr. Sulik, Dr. Sulik, and I called Dr. Giannone, Dr. Giannone, but I called Ellen, Ellen. <laughs> so, uh, but I really enjoyed the rotation and then something kind of clicked about you know, halfway through that rotation. And I think it was, we were doing an airway and uh, the anesthesiologist kind of said like, hey man, you were really good at that, what you just did. Like he, he, that whole case went so smoothly. I can't believe it. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah, I, like I enjoy it. It's it's fun. And so that's what drove me to to want to do pediatrics and pediatric airway. And then, you know, I matched at Cincinnati, obviously. And to kind of round the story out after well, I was in Cincinnati, I was looking at jobs and I was looking at Baylor and I was looking at UT Southwestern. And I thought UT Southwestern, the job was a little bit better in terms of the type of cases I would get to do. Yeah. And so I wind up choosing to come here because I thought that may be a little bit more important at the moment to make that choice. Yeah. Well, what's, what's great for me is that, uh, so Dr. Johnson was my fellowship director. He's been my mentor, my friend, my truly my sponsor, the person that pretty much I do what he tells me. <laughs> and it's kept me afloat for the last seven years. And not just afloat, but successfully swimming, I feel. So I feel fortunate to have you as my partner and my friend. Thank you. Yeah, no. So, all right. So let's get into it. Um, let's get into tracheostomy. And, uh, you know, I think for me, so, you know, in residency, I, I went, I was in a program where we just did six months. Yeah, and, you know, when you come and do your fellowship, all of a sudden it's, you know, you're jumping in to the children's hospital world, to the peds world. And I didn't realize just the nuances uh, between major differences, actually, between pediatric and adult tracheostomy, not just obviously the surgeries, but in terms of care and management. Just tell us about, you know, the members of your trach team, of our trach team, I guess, on the peds side. Who are the players? What do you need to have? A, how do you build a successful trach team? And what does that really mean? So I, I, you, you raised an interesting point when you talked about the differences between the adult 
world in the pediatric world. And, and I had a thought that one of the big differences is uh, that, so the, in the adult world, when you place a tracheostomy in a patient, kind of the end of life, right? They're, they've had a stroke or they've had a, a major, they have a major health event and now they're in the hospital in a vent and that's, you know, cardiac surgery or something like that. And they need a trach, but they're usually older and they're sicker. And, you know, a lot of times they wind up going to rehab and you never really, you don't follow a lot of those patients long-term where in pediatrics, it's often the beginning. So they're getting their trach when they're six months old, nine months old, a year, almost 80% of the trachs we do at children's, they're under a year. Right. And the average uh, time it takes to decannulate a child is two and a half years. And that's, or should I say the median time is at least two and a half years. And, but only about 30% of our patients ever get the trach out. Wow. So the, you know, and about 15% pass away. So the majority of patients where you put a tracheostomy tube in, they keep the trach throughout their childhood. So if you put a, a trach in a child who's six months old or a year old, oftentimes you're going to be following them until they're an adult if you practice that long. And I do now, I'm starting to see more of the kids that I've trached, you know, in 2010, 2008, they're starting to age out. So I think that you raised that very interesting point in terms of the perspective of tracheostomy. It really is a long-term care issue. So you're dealing with a, a long horizon of how do you manage this child with the tracheostomy, as opposed to the adult, it, they're probably, you know, you're going to see them once or twice, if ever, after you put the trach in. And so how do you build a team? I think you, you have to have, you have to have a lot of people involved. So, and it sounds like, you know, you have an inpatient and outpatient, right? Because which you bring up long-term. And so a lot, like you said, a lot of those it's not just getting them out of the hospital, but then, you know, taking care of them for years after. So the, the first challenge is, is really trying to decide who needs a trach or who, what quality of life, whose quality of life will benefit from a tracheostomy. Because clearly there are some children who you shouldn't put a trach in, but that gets in sort of the ethical dilemma mm -hmm. of do you do it, do you not do it? We often wind up doing it. But so that's the first thing. So having someone who can go and evaluate the patient and really determine, okay, is this patient a good candidate for a tracheostomy? So in our team, it's a nurse. She goes to the patient's bedside, she examines the patients and she reviews the charts and she also talks to the family and she gives a feel for, okay, is this a good situation? And will this improve the quality of this child's life? Because sometimes the answer is no, we really need to talk about other ways to, to deal with those uh, life issues. And so that's the first person you need on the team, someone who can go look at the chart, not from like the resident perspective. I think the residents just go and they look at the neck and they decide, okay, is a patient on anticoagulation right. and, you know, like, can you safely do the trick, but the nurse, or if it's an APP, uh, in another saying like a, a physician assistant, they help you to, you need someone to help you determine initially, is this a good candidate for the long run? Right. Um, and then the other thing, so that's one of the big components. So the other, once you decide the place to trade, and actually there's more to it, which we can talk about if you want, but let's say you go through the process and you decide where you're going to place a tracheostomy. So now for our team, 
we have another nurse who primarily works on the inpatient side and she does a lot of the teaching. Mm. She really spends time with the family, helping them and guiding them to learn how to take care of a child with the tracheostomy tube. Because there's a, there's a lot involved. Obviously, an adult, you can put them in a nursing home. You can put kids in nursing homes too. But for most kids, they're going to go home. So you have to have families trained to take care of the child. So she does that. And then we also have a respiratory therapist. And so the respiratory therapist is there, can help teach them how to do a vent, like what, what steps are needed to manage their child on a vent. It can help them how to understand suctioning and just the c- delivering respiratory medications and things like that. And then those three individuals, they primarily work on the inpatient side. Mm-hmm. And so one of them, who her name is Rebecca Brooks, Brooks, she also does some outpatient stuff too. So she has an outpatient clinic that helps bridge the gap between inpatient and outpatient. But on the inpatient side is mostly those three individuals working together to um, provide care for the children. And then we have Ashley Brown, who's our speech therapist. She does inpatient work too, but not as much as the other three. And what she does on the inpatient side is she kind of makes sure that one, that the child is receiving speech therapy services and feeding services, learning how to eat as well as seeing whether or not they're a good candidate for one-way valve usage. So we can work on some communication if the child has the ability to communicate. And all the teaching starts before the trach is, you know, even placed. I mean, a week, week to 10 days before. Well, the te- once. so the initial counseling session, mm-hmm. that is some teaching, but the actual like teaching in terms of like, how do you do a trach change? How do you mm-hmm. suction a trach? That starts the day the trach is placed. Okay. And then goes forward. And we actually have a uh, concept are we have journey maps where it'll show the families. These are all the steps that you need to go through in order to successfully go home or uh, to a rehab center with the, with the tracheostomy. And so usually it takes us, if a kid is doing well, it'll take about three weeks to finish the journey map. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I assume that in the beginning, when you're creating this team, that, that there's a lot of time commitment from your standpoint, getting things going. But now I assume at this point, it kind of, that the team works pretty independently and, and comes to you kind of for, for tough situations or, or what's, how do you interface with the team? How regularly, what does that look like? So we, we have regular meetings. We have a standard once a month meeting where we sit down and we talk about, you know, all the issues related to uh, the program. And then we can have any ad hoc meeting as we need. And then we, I share clinics with Rebecca Books and, and Ashley Brown, the speech therapist and the nurse who spans inpatient outpatient care. We have a multidisciplinary clinic. So I see them all the time. So, you know, we have trait clinic just with kids who we try to limit it to kids not on a vent. We have that twice a month. And then Rebecca Brooks also has her own clinic and I'm there at the same time. I'll have a, I have a feeding clinic. And so when she's having her trait clinic, I'm in the feeding clinic, but I can be consulted for any patient. And then we also have another multidisciplinary clinic. This clinic is at Cityville, which is a campus up the street from the main hospitals, uh, kind of across from the train station in Parkland. And that's our vet clinic. And so that clinic, they see a pulmonologist. These are all kids on a vet. They see a pulmonologist, they see me, the nurse, my nurse practitioner, or my nurse, nurse assistant is there. I have my personal nurse there. Our speech therapist is there. We also have our, there's a dietitian, there's a respiratory therapist. 
There are just, it's, it's a big group of people and we see 10 to 14 patients twice a month in that clinic. And these are all bit dependent patients from all over the city. So we have at least four or five trait clinics a month that are multidisciplinary. And so I meet often with them during those times. So there's a lot of communication and interaction and, and work. Yeah, they take, they take care of a lot of the inpatient stuff in terms of the consults and doing trait crowns and things like that. Um, but yet and still they'll, you know, every time they write a note, they send it to me and I co-sign it. If they need my help getting a patient scheduled for surgery, then I'll do it. That kind of thing. So there's still, even though we only meet once a month, there's a lot of interaction and meeting. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think multidisciplinary, I'm sure for those families, that makes, that's such a huge convenience factor for them to be able to see multiple providers, you know, during one visit. And then, you know, on, on our side of it, I'm sure it's helpful to be able to be in a place where you can be more collaborative and see the people that are kind of working um, with the patient as well. What are, what are some of the biggest pearls and pitfalls, you know, for people out there who are wanting to build their own trait team or, or who are looking into trying to establish multidisciplinary clinics? Well, I, I mean, there's, where, where shall I begin? <laughs> I, so I think that the first thing is, it's money, right? You get, people don't work for free. So if, say you want a nurse and you want a, an advanced practice nurse or a PA to, to help you start this program, well, who pays their salary? And oftentimes they work for the hospital. And if they work for your practice, then that is taking them away from other clinical duties. And so you, when you got to figure out a payment structure, now we're fortunate that our practice is very busy, so we can, we can afford to pay their salaries. But that's the first challenge. So you may have to rely on volunteerism. So if you work at a big hospital, hospital usually has a speech therapist who works for them, usually has respiratory therapists, usually has nurses, or you can use your own nurse. So that's going to be the, the first big challenge, just getting the personnel and making sure that, that there's a margin or, you know, that there's money and that they can be paid and um, that, that it's not all voluntary. And it makes, you have to get people that believe in it too. I mean, I feel yeah. like people, there's some attrition as well with. Yeah, no, I agree. I, again, I'm difficult. Just, it's hard work. I think usually you can find people who want to do it. Now, keeping them can be the challenge. Yeah. Oftentimes you train them up and then, you know, people leave, people get successful and they want to, they want to get a, they want a promotion or, or sometimes, you know, life circumstances. But I have found that since I've been here, usually we've been able to find people who are willing to do it, but it, that does change quite a bit in terms of the turnover, That's particularly on for the nursing in the clinic, because it can be very, it can be challenging work. They're very, I would say, I mean, every day we get a call from a trach patient about something. And so I think with like tubes and tonsils or ear infections, you get those phone calls, but they probably, you know, a couple of times a week, or it's very acute. Like you just did a tonsillectomy. And so you're getting a bunch of calls, but they're routine. Like, okay, your kid doesn't want to eat. Okay. Give them ice chips. But with the trach patients, they, again, they don't go away. You, you keep them for a long period of time. And so there is this cumulative effect. So you think like, oh, let me do, I want to do a lot of trachs. And so you do 50 tracheostomies a year. Well, that means probably 30 of those patients aren't getting rid of their trachs. Yeah. So that means the next year you've got now 60 trach patients. And then the next year you've got 90 trach patients. Wow. The year after that, you got 120 trach patients. And so can you manage 120 trach patients? Can you imagine 
you know, 240. So our, right now we have about 500 active trade patients. Wow. You can imagine like every day, there's just a lot of phone calls. <laughs> That's what your epic inbox That's like 50, <laughs> and, 50 messages. And so you, you kind of figure out what to do with those kids. But yeah, so I, I think, you know, finding people, you, you have to have a, a nurse, you have to have a, a, ther a respiratory therapist or a speech therapist. You have to have those components involved. And the other things that we don't have that we, we use a lot, at least they're not dedicated to the airway program, are social worker and case managers. Because so you can imagine the social work situations can be profound if you have a family that lives on the third floor of an apartment building, and now they have a kid who's on a vent and in a wheelchair. Right. How do you manage that? Do they, do they have to move? Yeah. Um, how do you deal with transportation? And then just a case manager just once at least to get out the hospital equipment issues, you want to make sure that all their equipment issues get settled in a timely fashion so you can get them out sooner or else that'll delay your discharge. So um, switching, switching gears a little bit, you, you had mentioned earlier, you know, we talked about only, only 30% of patients will be decannulated. And, and so, you know, a lot of these kids are going to grow up and still have trachs and, I've noticed in my general ENT practice, I've started to inherit patients who have had trachs since they were, since they were very young and continue to have trachs and just need to have an ENT to kind of help manage that with them. So what advice do you have for, for those of us who are inheriting pediatric trachs? You know, should we, do we need to be upsizing them at, at a particular point? Do we need to, are there, is there anything different about how we manage our other trach patients? What, what pearls do you have? So I, I try to tr treat each child individually when it comes to tracheostomy. So we have a standard trach that we kind of put in when they're young. And then we'll upsize it appropriately. But once they get to about a four and a half, five tracheostomy tube, then I think it's basically pay on a case by case basis. If they're a kid who's like 16 and they still have a trach, probably they're either like a cranial facial child who still has some, you know, cranial synostosis type issues, a small mandible, small maxilla, you know, you know, something like that. And they still need more surgery or it's a, you know, it's a kid who's kind of neuro devastated and they've just had a trach for a long time. And it's just, they're going to have, continue to have a trach for those kids. If the trach is stable, I just leave it alone because usually there's not going to be much growth. I think that signs that suggest that you're going to need a new trach, things like trouble suctioning, if the trach starting to fall out, if they feel like there's more obstruction. The one thing that I do notice in a lot of the adolescents who've had a trach since childhood is that they start to develop scoliosis if they're not moving around a lot. Hmm. And that scoliosis causes the trachea to move with the spine. And then it becomes more challenging to find a trach that fits them, that kind of sits in the center of the lumen that doesn't have, you know, anterior irritation or backwalling kind of thing. So those are the, the things I start to look at as they get older. How do you manage that? I feel like we get those calls. I see it obviously more on the inpatient side. Maybe it's a 17-year-old like that, or maybe a 10-year-old like that, that now is inpatient for, you know, a respiratory decompensation from a viral URI. And it's, hey, the trach's obstructive. And there's so much scoliosis and positioning that, you know, makes a difference of when the trach is obstructive or not. 
And I find that sometimes I play the go shorter, go longer game. What are, what, what, from your experience, how do you manage that? Cause that can be, I feel like it, it, it's hard to know uh, what the right thing is sometimes for those kids. Yeah, no, it, it, I don't have a good answer. It's all, it's trial and error. Yeah. And you just, you try to find the best fitting trick that you can. It, I, I generally speaking, I think going longer is the way to go as opposed to going shorter. I think going shorter, you tend to back wall more often, okay. but sometimes, you know, you go longer and you get all the way to the crina and it's still, it's still right. really good. So you just go back a few millimeters and, and let, and just see what happens. I do sometimes we'll have talks with families about what is the long-term um, prognosis for their child. Right. I think you have to be honest with, you know, like, like hey, some, we, no one gets to live forever. And at some point, something's going to take, you know, something's going to cause all of us to, to move on. Okay. And for your child, that may mean that it's just respiratory function is just going to slowly fail. And is that so bad? And if, if the struggle is we're just constantly trying to find a trait that fits and the reality is like your, the scoliosis is so bad and the pulmonary function is so bad right. that we're just looking at the, sort of the end stage, do you want to continue to just trial and error or do you want to move toward, you know, hospice uh, palliation? I was going to say, how often, when do you know to get palliative care involved for these kids? I, I think it, it's, it's good. Uh, I mean, so let, let's go back to the beginning, but that six month old kid who had a, uh, you know, a, a near drowning and now they're a noxic brain injury. The two-year-old has a near drowning and they've had a noxic brain injury and they've lost most of their function and they're going to be vent dependent, G-tube dependent from here on out. And there's probably little to no, there's not going to, so you start having these quality of life issues, right? right? So what, how do you define quality of life for someone who can't eat or, or can't talk or can't walk, uh, who can't breathe without a ventilator? And, but these are tough conversations to have, but we try to have those conversations with families and kind of let, and just let them know like, Hey, you know, everybody's going to heaven. And sometimes you just have to let, let God's will be done. Right. And obviously not everyone believes in right. God or heaven, but I'm just using that language to say that we have to be able to talk to families about death and dying and, and do it in a way that's empathetic, but also lets them know like, yeah, you know, your child had suffered a serious injury and this is what you're looking at. Would it be better to, to just not do any else? And, you know, a lot of families choose that option. Right. Uh, and so I'll, I'll have that conversation at any time with any family. And then I know, you know, we're very lucky. We're part of a big, you know, freestanding children's hospital, a big academic center. And so, you know, we have a close relationship with our pulmonary colleagues, with our NICU colleagues. And, and it, it seems like, you know, when we have with that multidisciplinary team approach expanded, not just ENT and everybody's on the same page, those outcomes in terms of inpatient, outpatient care, complications, end-of-life issues have got to make that journey a lot smoother and hopefully the best 
as possible when, when, when you have all those hands involved and in trying to make the shelves care as the best it can be. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to switch gears just a little bit in, in terms of managing pediatric trach patients, you know, I feel like one of the, the common things in the adult world too is patients who have bleeding from their trach. And I'm just curious how you, how you manage that. Wow. If I only, so I was going to say, I'd be crazy. So bleeding from the trach, secretions around the trach, grain lesion tissue, wound problems. Oh, every day there's a new wound right. have to deal with. So uh, bleeding from the trach, we actually have a pulmonary sick plan that talks about secretions. And so we kind of have a green, yellow, red, so green, you know, kind of their usual, not a lot of secretions, everything's great. Yellow, maybe a little bit of increased secretions, maybe bleeding just with suctioning. And for that, we kind of just tell them, hey, don't suction as much. Maybe if you think it's due to suctioning, use more saline, use more breathing treatments, keep an eye on things. But then any heavy bleeding, and the family can decide what that is, our persistent bleeding, we, we always tell them to come in and I, we just look. I think you, you have to look. You just don't know what it is. Anyone who's got bleeding from the trach. Um, when you say you have to look. It, oh, so you bring them into the clinic and you so just tracheoscopy. Up, and then, you know, you can do a tracheoscopy okay. where you put the tracheoscopy, you know, flexible scope through the tracheostomy tube and you look to see if it's like suction trauma or backwalling and causing granulation tissue. Those are the two big things. Sometimes you can see tracheitis and inflammation. And so if you see anything that gives you a diagnosis, then obviously you treat it and uh, you go from there. Now, if you don't see anything, if it's completely normal, then you have to decide, are you going to do a bronch in the operating room or not? Typically, I won't do it unless it's persistent and, and you know, we just don't have an answer. So if they say, if you come into the clinic and they've had some bleeding and we don't see anything and everything seems fine, I'll say, well, just keep an eye on it. And then if it doesn't get better, then we'll do a bronchoscopy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's the way I manage bleeding. And is there ever any, is there ever a role for CT angiogram in that? Hmm. Rarely. So I think the times that we've done it was when we've seen anterior erosion of the trachea. And you can typically, it, it's almost always been the sort of the kids who in the wheelchair who are not walking around and start to develop trachs that don't fit very well. And you'll, you'll see the erosion and even the, the times that I've seen the erosion, I've only seen one sort of near fistula, like the trick, the anterior trick wall got completely eroded and you could see the anonymate on scope, but anonymate was still sad. <laughs> like, uh, that's not a good scope. <laughs> no, like my blood pressure. <laughs> like, was your blood yeah. pressure okay? Yeah. What were your vitals at that time? And he had a huge tracheotaneous. No, actually his trach had, his trach went in, I guess I shouldn't give too much detail, but it, it, it went into a false track and it, that's, and it basically eroded in the false track and it kind of went into the mediastinum and it caused the second pocket, which was basically rubbing right up against the uh, nominate. You could see it, it was clear as day. So yeah, that was a, that was a near miss. And, uh, but besides that, I think I've only seen. One other time where we got in CT angio and it was, it was pretty obvious that, that this was a severe injury and there was bleeding and he looked and you could see that there was erosion. 
but besides that, I don't think I've ever done it. Now, you talked about anti-erosion. What do you do about those posterior erosions, cuff injuries? Put in a longer trach. Okay. They usually heal. Now, sometimes if you damage the back wall to the point that it becomes malasic, that can be a problem. But again, even in those kids where it becomes malasic, it, they tend to be kids who, who are not going to get, they're not going to get decaynulated. So you can just watch it, but yeah, you just, I just put in a longer trach and often it will heal once you put in a longer trach. How often do you see, um, tracheoesophageal fistulas from the cuff or from placement? Is that? I've seen it once, maybe twice. It's, it's pretty rare. I think it's more common in adults, probably because one, they're almost all of them use the cuff and it's an air cuff. You can, you can really, you can, like I, we use uh, something called, we use sterile water for our cuffs. So we don't use a Shiley air cuff. Most of our kids have either Traco or Bavona and that uses sterile water. So you can only put so much sterile water in there, um, usually about five. And so I think that causes, can cause erosion, but it, it's not like this huge air cuff where you're just going to just crush everything. <laughs> and then also those, those kids tend not to have like OG, like uh, NG tubes, especially those rigid NG tubes. Most of part, most of them have G tubes. So there's not something rubbing up against. So that's why I think we've only seen it twice. It's pretty rare. Now we've, we, now we've had some tracheal diverticulums and things like that. But, you know, once we basically took out the, put in a longer trach and allow it to heal, it just heals up. And you just take them back for a DLB two, three weeks later? How do you? Yeah, just take them back in a, you know, two weeks, two, four weeks later, take a look. And yeah, they... They tend to heal up. It's amazing. Like even, even when you false track. So if you, if you put in a new trach and you go through that posterior wall and it gets in a false track, you know, you take it out and you put it back in the right spot, that, that injury will heal. It's just that, that back wall tends, I think, cause it's so soft, it's just muscle and it's membranous. It's not like a, uh, it just, it, it just tends to heal. Now anything's possible. I'm sure if you go to like some places, they're like, no, no, no. I saw one where everything was gone. Yeah. But, uh, I think it's pretty rare. Yeah. Do you, do you ever use uh Cipridex or any sort of topical drops down the trach for, for bleeding or irritation? All the time. <laughs> tracheitis, especially, I think it works best for granulation tissue. So if you have a little bit of granulation tissue at the tip of the tracheostomy tube, you know, four drops of Cipridex twice a day works like a charm. How long do you usually keep them on for? 10 days. The same as for tympanosomy tube odorrhea or, you know, well, I guess it's a little bit longer than that, seven days. So I think I used to go seven to 10 days, something like that. Cool. Some kids have been on longer. Some kids are on maintenance. <laughs> where it's just, they just <laughs> suprodex. Like, okay, you just do it twice a week. And like tracheitis, especially. And so as long as, as long as them, everything else looks good, it's, it would, it's safe to to use it just like people use Flonase every day they can use their their separate so, I, mean, I mean if it's not safe we have it I don't I guess it's such a rare right thing for someone to be on Cipridex it, it's hard to pick up any and remember these are sick kids too so yeah so you know I don't know but it seems pretty safe I mean we've used it for 20 years now probably and yeah I haven't Maybe some people have had some allergies, maybe, but it, it's not even something I think about. They, usually the family will tell me like, oh, he has a Cipridex allergy. Oh, okay. Well then I guess we won't use Cipridex. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, do you have any final pearls, things, you know, just from all of the experience that you've had, final words of wisdom or things that, you know, everybody should at least know this? Wow. <laughs> Everyone should at least know that. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think, I think, so I'll, I'll, I'll take it a different way. So I think that you should always bet on yourself that you can, you can be better and that you can solve complex problems, particularly if they're kind of human relation problems. Often what happens is you find yourself in a work environment where there's conflict and there's people working against each other and butting heads. And that's the reason why you have systemic error in something like tracheostomy patients. You'll find that there's just people who that's the way they do trachs or, you know, no one takes the care of people with tracheostomy seriously or, or you don't think anybody wants to make things better. And, and I would say that that's not true. I think wherever you are, if you really set out to make positive change, positive change will happen. There's this book called the, what is it? The Alchemist. And in part of it, he says when, you know, the, the whole universe works with you if you're pursuing kind of your personal legend. I think if you're pursuing something positive and you're trying to make a real significant impact on, on your work environment, on whatever it is, I, I do think the universe aligns and, and works with you. And so that would be my, my final piece of advice to everyone. I think that's beautiful. And I think you're, you're such a, a great example, Dr. Johnson, of someone who's obviously followed their passion and who is, you know, thriving and, and is a, sets a great example. Yeah. Of us. Totally. Very, very. Yeah. No, we look up to you, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for coming yeah. in. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. If, if people want to connect with you or you know, reach out to you on social media, can let, let us, can you tell them where they can My find it? My account is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can send me money though. Twitter at rfjohnson77. And obviously my email address for the university is romaine period johnson at utsouthwestern.com. Edu, and you also have a YouTube channel. Is that correct? That's true. I do. I have yeah. a YouTube channel. I've keep it's kind of. Uh, I, I, ch I changed the way I do spirogloplasty. Yeah. <laughs> After looking at one of your YouTube, I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't need to grab anything. I'm just going to barely touch it with the microreader. Okay. And I think it's just you look up my name, Romaine Johnson, and you'll find my my YouTube channel. And I post the. I try to post mostly procedures, but I also I'm a member of the Harry Barnes Society, which is the it's the otolaryngology section for the National Medical Association is primarily African-American physicians, but are African-American otolaryngologists, but it's all over the diaspora. We have people from Canada and, and, you know, West Africa and the Caribbean. And I mean, even like, you know, like Al Marathi and Ron Cooper Smith, they're, they're members and, you know, they're, they're obviously not African-American, but so anybody can join this, you know, it's for allies. And, uh, and so I'll post, we have a virtual grand round series. So I also will post the grand rounds from those series as well. So yeah, come check out my YouTube channel. And for people that enjoy journal articles, Dr. Johnson probably has been publishing at least five to eight articles a year for the last five to your help. Here's your help. Oh, uh, no, no. That's, <laughs> I, that's because you're a kind mentor. <laughs> Keep me swimming. So, but yeah, a very hard, heavy hitter when it comes to 
academic contribution as well. So, all right. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in and joining us. Um, awesome guest today. I learned a ton. Uh, we'll see you guys next time on Backtable ENT. 